It's time to put principles ahead of politics. This is Sages of the Sun, brought to you by The New York Sun. I'm Caroline Beek, a co-founder and editor of The Sun, and I'm joined by Seth Lipsky, our legendary editor-in-chief. We're here to take you behind the headlines, unblinkered, principled, and straight. Let's get started. This week, we sat down with James Brooke to deep dive into the latest developments in Ukraine and Russia's ambitions going forward. A lifelong foreign correspondent, Mr. Brooke reported for the New York Times for 24 years from West Africa, Brazil, Canada, Japan, Korea, and Russia. After he left the Times, he was the Moscow bureau chief for Bloomberg and then the Moscow-based correspondent for Voice of America. After eight years in Russia, he moved to Ukraine, where he worked for six years in Kiev. His insight into both nations is extraordinary. Jim's time today is limited, so I just want to jump right into it. He has really fascinating insights from all my conversations with him thus far and feels like the war in Ukraine is at a bit of a critical juncture and interested to get your thoughts, Jim, both on the Ukrainian side and their calculus and what you think they should or should not uh, be doing or thinking about in terms of strategic success or an eventual agreement and also what you're seeing on the Russian side. Yeah, uh, I think the real game changer are these HIMARS. That these are U.S. supplied, highly accurate uh, artillery pieces. There are already eight in action in uh, Ukraine. Apparently, they took off, took out a massive ammo dump near Kherson, and I think this is the beginning of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. I've heard they've taken out twelve ammo dumps. They're very, very precise. I say. The last one, they took out a Russian major general and 12 Russian officers. So this is really hurting the Russians. And the question is, can the Russians adapt fast enough to the old Soviet style of concentrating all their ammo in one place? I would bet they can't figure that out over the next uh, four or five weeks. So I think we're seeing uh, the beginning of the counteroffensive. The liberation of Snake Island was strategically important. There's now Ukrainian grain going up the Danube. Snake Island is a sort of one-mile square rocky islet near the Ukrainian mouth of the Danube. Uh, The Russians had held that for four months. And uh, once the HIMARS got in place, the Russians left. Uh, They left very quickly in two speedboats. And so now grain ships from the Odessa ports, and I say plural because it's not just Odessa City, like three in that region, are shipping grain to uh, to the Danube. So the big export for Ukraine, 80% of their exports go out through the Black Sea ports. Uh, Russia has blockaded these ports. Ukraine has mined them because they don't want to be attacked at three o'clock in the morning by amphibious troops. So it, both sides have to agree on this. Middle East and North Africa are facing real high, sky-high prices. Uh, Ukraine is the world's largest exporter of soybean oil, uh, which, sorry, sunflower oil, which is a big cooking product in India. So all around the world is asking to get Ukrainian grain and agricultural products back on the market. Fascinating. So these HIMARS are really making the difference. I saw a poll the other day saying that 98% of Ukrainians don't want their leadership to give up any territory in a peace agreement. And I thought of you in our previous conversation about how difficult do you think it would actually be to integrate these eastern provinces back into a Ukrainian state? Uh, what's your current thinking on 
Carolyn Bright, uh, whether it's 90% or 98%, uh, President Zelensky's hands are tied. He cannot trade land for peace. Uh, the official goal is to go back to the lines of February 24, uh, the day when Russia attacked Ukraine. It will be very difficult to dislodge the, the Russians from the Donbass area, which they basically leveled. But I think there's a very good chance of getting him out of Kherson. Kherson is key because it controls uh, the mouth of the Dnipro River, which essentially is Ukraine's Mississippi. It's their major uh, north-south artery uh, that carries about 10 million tons of cargo every year. It's got a series of hydroelectric dams, and it's really crucial for the country. And whoever controls Kherson region controls the mouth of Dnipro. Uh, and this goes back to the days of the Turks and the Czars. And, and believe it or not, John Paul, jo John Paul Jones, after he set up the American Navy, was sort of looking for a more lucrative position and signed on with uh, uh, Tsarina Alexander, uh, Catherine the Great. And he fought the Turks at the mouth of the Dnipro in the Harrison region. So it, for 300 years, it's been a very important strategic area. James, I, I, I was wanting to ask you about whether you think there is any parallel between the weaponry uh, that we're now supplying to the Ukraines that is proving so suddenly effective, as you noted at the outset, uh, to what happened in Afghanistan when big new Brzezinski and Carter uh, brought in uh, stingers to arm the Mujahideen. Mujahideen against the Russians. Uh, that also was very effective, was it not? And uh, correct. That that was a game changer. And and Seth, that's. Uh, I, I'd like to. I would not want to say it's wishful thinking. It would be nice if if this is the game changer, the way the Stingers were. Um, the Ukrainians have done very well with Stingers and with the uh, javelins, which are the shoulder-held anti-tank weapons. Uh, they've uh, knocked out. 10 times more tanks in five months than uh, the Mujahideen knocked out in 10 years uh, against the Soviets in Afghanistan. They've knocked out, I think, three times the APCs, armored personnel carriers. And the because of the Stingers, the Russians are very cautious with their use of helicopters. They've lost uh, over 100 helicopters. And, uh, and That's in Ukraine? Ukraine, correct. Yeah, wow. Well. I can dig up the real numbers. Um, yeah, I mean, and in terms of personnel, the Russians are really, um, it's almost a Potemkin army now because they, the Ukrainians say they've lost 37,000, but the British military, the British Ministry of Defense says they've lost 25,000, which is, in five months, which is almost double what they lost in Afghanistan in 10 years. And Seth, you're, you and I are old enough to remember that the Soviet Union had twice the population of Russia uh, and the demographics right. are not great in Russia. There's a shortage of healthy young men between the age of 18 and 30. Yeah, it look, it's also sounding like the Russians have lost in five months half of what we lost in, in the entire Vietnam War. I mean, that's just breathtaking. Correct. What they're doing is they're recruiting heavily, almost press ganging uh, young men from uh, these peripheral, geographically peripheral areas, ethnic minorities, uh, dep economically depressed areas, uh, promising them big signing bonuses. 
the initial reports are there are very few men who've been killed from Moscow and St. Petersburg. I mean, less than 30 total. So they're really feeding this war with the people who have very little political power, very little economic power. And then in the Donbass, these two little statelets that they've created, they literally are grabbing waiters out of restaurants. Uh, and I've heard that men have been living in their mother's apartments for five months by going out on the street for fear of being press ganged and um, used as cannon fodder. So um, while the Ukrainians have also suffered heavy losses, they are fighting for their country. And that's just evident um, on all fronts in terms of the, the unity of the country, uh, the massive outpouring of, of support. You remember those initial photos from late February, March, where there were uh, lines of men in front of recruiting stations going around the block. I mean, that was the the response. And it still is the response. By I was on the phone. I moderated an overseas press club a panel yesterday with three men in Ukraine, in Kyiv, and uh, their view is that the Ukrainians are holding together. They put politics aside and uh, they are holding together behind Zelensky. So, okay, so the Ukrainians are holding together. What, what about the Russians? What, what, do, what are we able to discern about what's going on domestically within Russia? And Yeah, it's, uh, it's very difficult to tell. As you know, amazingly enough, February 24, they basically shut down all Western media outlets. Uh, and if you read a story in the Times, they're good stories, but they're reported from Istanbul based on phone calls and their stringers inside Russia. I was the Bloomberg bureau chief, and my understanding is Bloomberg has actually closed the bureau. We had this incredible bureau overlooking the Kremlin or looking out on the Kremlin, not looking down on the Kremlin. And, uh, it was a killer of a bureau, and apparently it's closed. Uh, so along with Voice of America, Radio for Europe, just about everyone else you can think of. I think Putin is desperately trying to have a war without having a war, without people feeling the impact. And the positive side for him is by creating fuel shortages and grain shortages, he is actually earning more money than before sanctions. It's a thought-provoking uh, situation where we are. We have to revisit sanctions by uh, reducing the supply, he's increased the price, and uh, there's more money coming in. Now, the money may be frozen or hard to deal with, hard to exchange, but it's, uh, and he's obviously, all the Western companies are pulling out. So uh, that's really important for oil and gas production in the medium to long term. Yeah, that's fascinating. We had a conversation with Larry Kudlow the other day who was making that point that he's actually in a much better financial position than he was before. And he was making the point that in the past, whether, whether it was Georgia or Crimea, that it tracked with moments of high oil prices. Just to follow up on what Caroline was saying, I mean, the ruble is now the strongest currency in Europe, right? Yeah, but not very tradable. Um, I understand. I understand. I've got friends in Moscow or asking me to send them money. And uh, and something that's unreported, half a million Russians left in the half first a million. Yeah, in the first six weeks. And Putin really doesn't care because these are people who hate him. <laughs> these are the opponents. These are the people who make sense. These are the, the westernized, bilingual, trilingual my friends, essentially, I lived in Moscow for eight years, and a lot of they've gone wherever they can go to Tbilisi, Georgia, Yerevan, Armenia, Istanbul, Turkey. 
just to get out. And there was a very interesting quote I read that one woman said, you know, I thought about the people in the 20s who decided to stay. <laughs> you know, they ended up, you know, in the gulag. So it was amazing that half a million just took flight. And uh, and I have a friend who is trying to get to the Baltics and it's not easy and it's going to be increasingly difficult. Do you think... Um... Do you think Putin's calculus has changed? Like, what do you think he's gunning for? What do you think he can achieve at this stage? Well, he's really come out of the closet as someone who is determined to go down in history as having reintegrated Ukraine into the Russian Empire. And he almost, the way he's been slaughtering Russian-speaking Ukrainians, one could almost conclude that he wants Ukraine without the Ukrainians. Uh, You know, he, he wants the real estate and could do without the Ukrainians. Uh, he, he's given up on all this uh, blah, blah, blah about denazification, which didn't make any sense with Zelensky being president. But they're very uh, determined to keep going. Um, and the Ukrainians I was talking to yesterday said, we we will not go for Putin's salami tactics, you know, just carve off another chunk of Ukraine and then wait 10 years and carve out another chunk. They, they firmly believe that he has not given up on his strategy to take the whole country. Here's a factoid, Carolyn. The Nazis controlled France with 100,000 100, soldiers, okay? 100,000 soldiers. Ukraine is the size of France, continental France. And uh, the opposition is so overwhelming to the Russians that it's very hard to see, even if you are able to pull off a coup d'etat, which is the original plan back in February, how you can control a place is, is beyond me. Um, uh, how, how many troops has Russia got in Ukraine now? Well, I think they they had like 80,000. You know, they may have lost 25 to 35,000. They may have had 80,000 in the country and then a lot sort of in the wings doing logistics. And uh, so they So they have in the Donbass and other parts of Ukraine almost as many troops as the Nazis needed to to uh, take France, right? I mean, correct. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a lot of men, a lot of men. And and once again, Seth, you know, uh, having lived in Moscow and in Russia for eight years, the country is demographically imploding. It's aging and its population is almost shrinking. And this isn't Stalingrad. There's a huge value on young men aged 18 to 30. And um he has to fight a war without setting off alarm bells in European Russia, essentially. Thank you for listening to this sample of Sages of the Sun. To listen to the whole episode and access our entire catalog, go to NewYorkSun.com. That's NYSun.com.